This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. 1 John 3, 10 through 18. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I'm excited to have the honor this morning of continuing on in our series in 1 John. You know, I think uh, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I was reminded that uh, some at the top of all of the things that we would say are the most challenging in the 21st century. Uh, one of them has to be the fact that we are constantly bombarded every single day with new information. Uh, most of it comes in images, right? Uh, cultural critics, theologians, philosophers have said for years that as more and more images come our way every day, life will become more and more trivial to you and to me. Uh, all of this information, what we'll do is it'll make us numb to the things, even the things of substance and significance in our life. And this has a huge dehumanizing effect on every single one of us, right? Maybe nowhere else than in the context of relationships. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a, a German pastor during World War II, said this, for many today, even in his day, man is just a part of the world of things because the experience of the human simply eludes them. And the point is, is that as we continue to be inundated with images and things become trivial, people become things. Everything becomes a commodity that can be traded, invested in, withdrawn from for our own good, to spend however we would like, right? In our day and age, we always want something that is shiny and new. And the problem is, is that people, at least the same people, are not shiny and new. And so we know by experience and the Bible that humans were created for relationships and more specifically to love one another in relationship. Jesus says it this way, uh, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And when I preached on love a few weeks ago, I described love like this. Love, biblically speaking, is the giving of myself for the flourishing of others to the glory of God. So I, to love someone, is to give of myself for them, for their flourishing in in every way, to the glory of God. And I describe love that way. But like I said, people aren't shiny and new. And sometimes they're difficult and complex. So it's not as easy as it sounds to give of myself for their flourishing. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have made a mess of love at some point in our life. All of us have failed to love someone. And all of us have been hurt by others failing to love us. So as as attractive as it sounds, this idea of giving and flourishing and the glory of God, we all fail to love like this. We've all experienced this. We've either been the cause of hurt and pain or people have been the cause of hurt and pain to us. And the challenging thing is that oftentimes it's the people that we are closest to. Oftentimes the people we are most vulnerable with are the people who have hurt us. And what's painful to us is that oftentimes the people we hurt most deeply, the people we fail to love, when we choose ourselves and our own flourishing over that of others, it's oftentimes the people who are closest to us. This happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, it happens in community, it happens in the parent-child relationship. This reality, honestly, as I've been thinking about it, might be one of the things that causes the most confusion in our lives. The failure to love one another. In our text today, as we just read, John is writing into a situation that is filled with confusion. It's filled with vagueness because people have failed to love one another. If you've been with us, there was a group of people who have left. uh, The commentators will call them secessionists. So they have removed themselves from the church for various reasons. But on the way out, they have left, left so much damage and confusion that John is writing in to confusion and vagueness. Theological confusion and vagueness, moral confusion and vagueness. And now social confusion and vagueness. What does it exactly mean to love one another? Now I've already named one way in which our culture is similar to those who remove themselves from this community. Here's one more way that we connect with this text. These people, some will say, were proto-Gnostic. And what that essentially means is it was part of some type of movement that believed that the fundamental issue with human beings was uh, an issue of ignorance. Ted mentioned this earlier. This idea that if I just knew the right things, that I would flourish. That merely knowing the right things is what causes relationships to flourish, people to flourish. But we think that too, don't we? Right? All I need is something new. Right? I feel a little down. I feel like I'm not flourishing. Just tell me something new. I need to move on to something new. I need a change of scenery. Right? We think that a lack of newness or a lack of information is what keeps us from flourishing when in fact, what John is writing to them, right? You've heard from the beginning, it's nothing new. It's not about a lack of information. It's the lack of transformation. Exactly what Ted already introduced to us. And so in this text, we will see that the way we love is not through new information or the right information, but through transformation. I've heard it said that if John, the apostle John were an artist, he would only deal in contrasts. Whatever his medium would be, it would only be in contrast. So he speaks of Black, white, darkness, light, life, death, love, hate, 
And when he talks about the fact that we are called to love one another, he does it again in today's passage, right? He first gives us a negative picture and then he gives us a positive picture. And within those pictures, there are a few scenes or a few words that I have, ideas. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna cooperate with John this morning in the text. We're gonna start with this negative picture. And in the negative picture, he paints the, the idea of hate, murder, and death. Look with me here, verse 12. We should not be like Cain. Okay, why not? Because he was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Do you remember Cain and Abel, Genesis 4? Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. And they both bring, we read in Genesis 4, a sacrifice to God. And Abel's sacrifice is received and Cain's is not. Genesis doesn't tell us exactly why, but what it does tell us is that God was very clear with Cain that it was not about favoritism. He did not favor Abel over Cain. There was something wrong with Cain's offering. But what, what is clear in Genesis is that God calls him to repentance. And he says, if you do not do right, will I accept you? And if you do wrong, will I, will I not accept you? I think I said that confusing, but you understand what I'm saying, right? If you did what I told you to do, then I would have accepted you. It has nothing to do with Abel being better than you. It has to do with the disposition with which he came to me. And the writer of the Hebrews makes that really clear because when he's referring to Cain and Abel, he says the issue was that Abel came with his sacrifice filled with faith. So by inference, uh, Cain came without faith. Abel came with faith. So what you see here is faith or no faith. Hatred or love? Love or hate? Either way you say it, it's this or that. Now, we're not very comfortable with this, right? John's very comfortable with this. But even our popular theologians know that you can't say, like, I love, but like, I'm not into like sacrificial love, right? Like, I'm not into like giving things love, but I don't hate people either. I mean, so I might not be all in, but I'm not gonna kill anybody. And our popular theologians, they know this. What do they say? Players are gonna what? Play, 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 play. And haters are gonna what? Hate, 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 hate. But there's nothing in between. You're either gonna play or you're gonna hate. It's the same way here. John says you're either going to love or you're going to hate. Now, I think when some of us read this passage, we've been getting punched in the face by John. It's been so convicting the last few weeks, right? The, the doctrinal test, the test of obedience. And now the social test, I think we may read this and breathe a sigh of relief because we're thinking, okay, so if all I have to do in order to pass this test is not kill somebody, I'm good, right? He's like, don't kill, don't be like Cain. All right, I didn't have plans to do that. So I guess I'm all right. But before we go there, let's read the second half of verse 12, after the question, and why did Cain murder him? It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. We really do not like to think of ourselves as haters, do we? We don't. But we are sometimes. And that's exactly why John is writing this. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, do not be like Cain. And then he says, the spirit of Cain is what? A hatred of righteousness. 
Now we experience and see this all over the place, but just two places in the Bible that came to my mind were you think about Daniel and the Babylonian officials. Why did the Babylonian officials hate Daniel? It's because he was more righteous than they were. When we read in community Bible reading in Matthew, which we just finished, why do the Pharisees and scribes hate Jesus? It's because Jesus was more righteous than they were. This is a dynamic that we all experience, right? This is why even in the church, when we try to help someone, when we see some level of darkness or sin or a blind spot in their life, this is why even making all the necessary caveats, you know, we come and we say, hey, listen, brother, I'm for you. Listen, sister, I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm a sinner too, right? We come with gentleness. We come with grace. We come with mercy. And yet still, there can be a response of defensiveness in us when we are confronted like that and in them. You see, John has been clear that Christians live in the light. However, there's still darkness in us, right? The the key is what do you do with the darkness? Do you run from the light or do you come into the light? Do you try to get away from the light or do you dwell in the light, right? John says, if you say you have no sin, then what? You're a liar. You're not telling the truth. And so the question is, when do we experience the spirit of Cain? This idea of jealousy, this idea of bitterness, this idea of I'm so ashamed by the fact that darkness has been exposed in me that I do something with it. What do I do? Well, the spirit of Cain lashes out at other people. Right? Why? Because it feels so uncomfortable to be shown right there, right there is darkness and it's shocking. It can shock us. What happens is, is that when we see darkness in us and it's exposed in us, because we might see the righteousness in others, we try immediately to draw them down to only their failures. And this is what it can look like, right? So what about parenting or prayer or patience or self-control or generosity or faith or joy or kindness? We, we see these things in others, right? We witness them. And one way, as we see light and righteousness in someone else, for example, Cain and Abel, the right thing to do, the godly thing to do, would be to thank God for their righteousness, to thank God for the display of his kindness in their life and to aspire through prayer and through submission and to coming into the light and to confession to say, I want to pray like that, right? I, I wanna be like that. I want to, to be a prayer warrior. I wanna be gentle. I wanna be generous, but what do we do instead? You know, parenting for me, I, I experience this a lot in parenting. I'll see someone else do something and it'll be, they'll be so kind and the way in which they discipline their child or delight in their child or they're discipling their child, it, it's righteous, it's good, it's beautiful, it's light. And then I see it happening and then all of a sudden the spirit raises in my mind ways in which I'm failing at doing that exact same thing. And so what do I do? Sometimes what I do is my mind immediately goes to something negative in their life. And I say, well, they may be good at that, but over here, Wow. And I mean, besides, like, there's something wrong with them. I mean, they're all about parenting, right? Their whole life is parenting. I mean, seriously, don't they have a life? Don't they think about anything else except their kids? Their kids are idols. Their kids are idols in their life. They bow down and worship 
at the foot of their children. Or maybe they're just righteous. Or maybe God in his grace has transformed them in that place. And I can learn from that. And I can ask God to make me that way. The spirit of Cain is the spirit of attacking righteousness because we are not righteous. The spirit of Cain is to be jealous of someone else's gifts, someone else's righteousness, and being angry at that fact and then translating in that to being angry at them. That is the spirit of Cain and that exists in every single one of us, right? We all experience that. And then look in 13, verse 13 here, right after we just talked about this, his own deeds were evil, his brother's righteous. It's almost as though he goes, he sidetracks. He says, do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you, right? If you read this passage and take that out, the passage makes probably better sense at first. You're like, well, how did we get here? Why are we talking about the world? I thought we were talking about the church. I thought we were talking about brothers and sisters. He says brothers and sisters like nine times or something in this passage. It's a lot. How did we get here? Well, to sum it up, clearly in John's mind, there's a connection between the spirit of Cain and the spirit of the world because their daddy is the same, right? He already said that. Who is your daddy? Is it the devil or is it God? I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that said, we are all one humanity. And I thought, in one sense, maybe. But in another sense, it's clear, spiritually, we come from different fathers. And whoever our father is, that produces in us a certain disposition towards others and a certain disposition towards the world. And so verse 13, he says, do not be surprised. So I just, just a minute, I just wanna mention something. I think a lot of us increasingly are surprised by the fact that in the world there is hatred towards us, towards the church. Not in every way. I mean, there's still a lot of areas where the church and our values, because of God's common grace, it resonates with the culture, right? There are a lot of places where that's true and we're not hated, but there are plenty of places and even increasingly that we are hated. And I think what I have been, I'm shocked because I think, listen, like think about us. We're good citizens, right? We pay our taxes. We have jobs. We cut our grass, right? We're good people. Can't we just agree like to disagree on some of these things? Why do you have to attack us? We're surprised. And John simply says, do not be surprised. One of the reasons I'm surprised is because I'm addicted to feeling good, honestly. I wanna be respected. I don't wanna be misunderstood. And if people hate me for doing good, I'm misunderstood. But John in his gospel and John here is saying, it's not about being understood. It's about being righteous. It's about not compromising on your values, right? Now listen, what does that mean though? What does that mean? And for John, it's love. So it's not us going out and living obnoxious life. It's about simply loving like Jesus called us to love. That is what is righteous. It's not about having some moral crusade, although sometimes love will move us there. The commitment is to love, right? When we love as Christians, when we love God's word, when we love people, when we love non-Christians, when we love one another, that love will be so far-reaching, so pervasive, so righteous, that some people will hate it and therefore hate us because of it. That is the reality of what John is talking about. Now, let's go to 14. 
14b. He goes on, he's talking about the spirit of Cain. Fundamentally, the spirit of Cain, this negative picture that he's painting, is that unrighteousness in the spirit of Cain will produce anger or hatred at another person because they hate the light. Now in 14b, he tells us why. He says this, whoever does not love abides in death. So here it is again, you either hate or you play, right? You either love or you hate. It's either life or it's death. What does it mean to abide in death? I mean, just think about that. Did you just pass over that? To not love is to abide in death. First, abide. What's abide? Abide is a verb. Abode is a noun. So to abide is to remain in a place. Right? That's where we get this word abode from. Your house, your dwelling, your place. In the Bible, where you remain, where you dwell, is a realm of either life or death. It's all throughout the scripture used different words for it. And when you abide in something, you get your sustenance from it. You're connected to that thing. You participate in it. So to abide in Christ, like in John 15, is like to abide in the vine of life. I get my sustenance from life. And then through me, because life is pouring in me, I bear fruit that is life-giving. But we're not there yet because we're still talking about a negative picture, right? So what does it mean to abide in death? What is death? What is death in the Bible? Well, death is separation from God and it's the opposite of everything the spirit of God brings, right? So instead of meekness, for example, it brings belligerence and it brings arrogance. Instead of self-control, it brings the opposite of self-control. Instead of patience, it brings quickness to anger. Instead of a loving and gracious presence, it brings an anxious an oppressive presence. And when you dwell in death, you murder, is what John is saying. How is, how is that connected? Because as I dwell in death, I'm taking that into my sustenance, the exact opposite that is from the spirit of God, and it produces bad fruit in my life. You see, it's not about mainly what I do, it's about what I'm dwelling in, and that produces what I do. And so John is saying that these people who have the spirit of Cain in them, and insofar as you and I experience the spirit of Cain, in that place, we are drawing upon death and not life. As one commentator puts it, no one can claim to have genuine saving faith if he destroys his brother or sister, whether their physical life or reputation or character. You see, a spirit of lingering jealousy, hatred, and cynicism toward a brother or sister cannot coexist with spiritual fullness. There is a great incongruity of saying, I love God, but I hate you, and I will continue to hate you. There is a great incongruity there, and John calls it simply the spirit of Cain. So do not be like Cain. That's the negative picture. Remember, the whole point of this passage is love one another. You know you're righteous. You know you're a child of God if you love one another. And he gives the negative picture first. But now he paints the positive picture in verses 16 through 18. 
And he paints it using these three ideas, love, sacrifice, and life. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's he? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And the scripture paints this picture of Jesus. Jesus was rejected by men. Jesus was despised and not esteemed. Jesus was a man who carried our sorrows, was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, beaten, mocked, and scorned. For who? For us, is what John says. For us. Not for you. He doesn't say, don't be like Cain. Remember, Jesus died for you. Something wrong with you. No, Jesus died for us. John is not precluding himself from this. So what do we learn from verse 16? If abiding in death brings about hate, abiding in Christ brings about love and a specific kind of love, a sacrificial love. He says, we ought therefore to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love in the Bible is much more difficult than our pop culture would make it out to be, right? Love in pop culture is basically a general sentiment of goodwill, right? Love is much better in the Bible than simple unconditional affirmation. I mean, what does unconditional affirmation require from you and me by way of sacrifice, right? I mean, that's like me saying, Scarlett, she's two years old. I love you. That's fine. You can play in the street. I mean, love doesn't bring constraints. Love doesn't confront. Love just is unconditional affirmation. You want to do that? That's cool. You want to you do that? Yeah, I don't know, but that's fine with me, right? Because I love you. You do whatever you want. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's not love. Love is sacrifice. And unconditional affirmation does not lead to sacrifice. Love actually requires us to die to ourselves. It doesn't matter what relationship we're in, right? That could be sacrifice of time, sometimes reputation, always comfort, right? To sacrifice anything for anyone always requires that we sacrifice our comfort. And Jesus says, of course we love people who love us. Even the pagans do that. You love them, that's fine. So sacrifice is for people who are unlovely. Sacrificial love is for people who aren't qualified, who don't deserve it, who don't love us in return sometimes. That's the type of love that John is talking about. That's the type of love that he is speaking into, praying into, encouraging, commanding Christians to have in a proper response. So if John is speaking into a church, I just wanna pause and ask this. Do we want to be this type of church? Do do we want New City to be a type of church that loves each other sacrificially? I want to be a part of that church. I want to be in that community. I want to be in the community that John is talking about. And I had this realization in a conversation that insofar as I feel like I fall short of that or my experience of New City falls short of that or any church, right? But we're just here, so I'm speaking about us. 
insofar as my experience falls short of that, I, re- I realized something, and it was, I was reminded of this this week, is that as long as I believe that love and community can be tacked on to my life, and I can still do everything else I wanna do, but not sacrifice for other people and still somehow get community, like that's possible. That's not possible. If I wanna be a part of a church like this, I have to sacrifice things in my life to free up time to give to other people, to be with other people, to pray with other people, to encourage other people, to love them, to live with them, to do life with them. Sometimes I'll have to bear burdens that I don't wanna bear with them. Sometimes I'll have to sacrifice sleep and energy and money and all types of things. But I wanna repent towards that. I wanna be a part of that community. And my prayer this week and ongoing will be that new city that we grow increasingly into a community that looks like this. Now, moving towards the end here, I think sometimes when we think about laying down our life and we talk about death, right? Jesus died for us. We think of really, really heroic things. Like I have a friend. Sometimes that happens. I have a friend. And years ago, before she was a Christian, before she was married, before she had children, she had a friend who was diagnosed with an illness that made it likely and highly probable that at some time in her life, she would need a new kidney. Her kidneys would be done. She would need a kidney transplant. So when they found that out, they tested her group of friends and they tested her family. And my friend was a match. And my friend told her, if you ever need a kidney, I'll give you my kidney. Years went by. People have moved on. My friend became a Christian. Her friend was still not a Christian. My friend got married, had kids, had a new life, had a new responsibility. And out of nowhere, she gets contacted. Guess what? It's time for a kidney. And my friend had to consider all of this, right? She, she considered things have changed and I don't know if I can do this anymore. But she did it. She went back, met her friend, told her how her life had been changed. They cut her open, took out her kidney, gave it to her friend. And I thought, no way. That is crazy. I'm glad she didn't ask me. I would maybe try to talk her out of it. And I'll tell you this, just so you know now, if one of you needs a kidney, I don't know. All right, I'm serious. I just, I might need both of them. And you just don't know. So sometimes when we think of love, we think of things like that, which are great, which are wonderful. But I love the fact that John in his verse 15 says this. Everyone, sorry, not 15, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see the spectrum? It's I will die for you, love, or you don't have clothes, I, I can help you with that. You don't have food, I can help you with that. So basically, John has just put this huge spectrum, the simplest thing, the most obvious thing, help a brother in need. If one of you walked in here with, with no clothes on, I would be the first one to go get a blanket for you. I would find that for you, right? Why? Because that's what you do. That, all of us would do that immediately. Now, there are lots of applications to this verse that we could go into that at some point we should go into. But what I'm going, the way I'm gonna apply it today is this, that John has given us this reality 
of that. It's really easy to talk about loving the brothers, but when you talk about brother, you see he made it singular, brother, specific, on the ground, concrete sacrifice, not in the realm of ideas. Ideally, I might give you a kidney if you ask. I might do this, I might do that. But no, will you, to that person right there, sacrifice for them? And think about all of the things in between those two realities. Think about all the ways you and I might be called to love someone. Think about all the ways you and I might be called to sacrifice to someone in community, in this church, in our marriages, in our families. And I think because of the idea of cheap love in our culture, it's so pervasive, we actually believe that we can do this. We actually think when we take vows sometimes, when we say, I love you, I'll love you forever, right? We're making a vow for 30, 40, 50 years. You think you're just gonna feel the same way? That's cheap. Words are cheap, right? And that's what he says. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you might say, but, it, but you know, it's, it's about what's in here. I mean, it's about my motivation. That's what counts. It's like my heart, my love for people. And I would say, of course, but if your love and heart for people doesn't actually flow out of you into deeds, then it doesn't count for much. Yes, it counts, but not for much if it doesn't get out into the world. And so this idea, this pervasive sense of cheap love waters down our understanding of what we are called to as Christians. And we actually believe that we can do it on our own and we're surprised when we can't. We're surprised when we can't. We think, why is this hard? There must be something wrong with me. Where are you gonna go when your marriage is so hard and you've tried everything? You've tried everything. Where are you gonna go to keep loving? What about when you have a conflict with your children or family members or falling out with a friend and it's so hard and it's so confusing, where are you gonna go? Verse 14, John tells us how we get this strength. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. You hear that? We have passed out of death into life. In chapter two, he says that those who love the brothers abide, uses that same word, abide not in death, but in light. And in John's gospel, light equals life. What do we say about abiding? You go there, you remain there, you make your abode in there. That's your home. And it, it dwells in you and it pours into you and it permeates you. And then it overflows, not into hate, but into love and into sacrifice. And in the Bible, life is abundance, not scarcity. Life is fruitfulness. Life is sharing. Life is fellowship. Life is faithfulness. Life is kindness, goodness, self-control. And the order here is crucial. It's not love so that you can earn life. Sometimes we flip it that way, right? Next week, we'll talk about what happens in our hearts when, when we get the order out of, out of order. But we don't love to earn life. We have life in Jesus. And as we abide in that life, it flows in us. It changes us. It transforms us. To then, <laughs> we produce love. We produce fruit. We don't 
We don't, sorry, we bear it. We don't produce it. That's the distinction I'm trying to make. We don't produce it like on our own. We bear it. It just happens, right? The source is not in us. It's from outside of us and it comes through us. The order is crucial. Now to end. John has painted this negative picture. The source of hate, the children of the devil who dwell in death. That was us. But how did we get transferred from death to life? And we think about these three words, hate, murder, death, love, sacrifice, life. And we look at Jesus. Jesus was hated so that we could be loved by the Father. Jesus was murdered and sacrificed himself so that you and I could have life. Jesus took death to give us life. And this is the fundamental reality of the Christian life. This is what makes us a loving people. Abiding in that reality. And as we abide in this fundamental reality, we will grow in love for our brothers and sisters. And I pray that this would be so in our church. Let's pray. Father, make it so. Grow us into a people, into a community who dwells more and more richly in life. That we would, rather than running away from light into darkness as you shine it in our hearts, that we would repent and run to the light. That's our home because we are in Christ. That's where we abide in life. So I pray that you would lead us into who we are, that you would continue to transform us into your children because you have made us your children. I ask as we respond in our hearts and worship that you would drive home in our hearts and in our consciences the order that we see. You have saved us. And now the proper response is to love put into our hearts and minds and wills the conviction and reality that we cannot in any way earn life. It is a gift to be received. It is only when we can live there and get there quickly through repentance that we will see lasting transformation, that life comes through you. And as that happens, we will be transformed to become more loving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.